Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome Henry Selleck, director of Wendell and Wild. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast with me, Ben Mitchell, and Steve Henderson. Hello, Steve. Hello, it's me. How are you, Ben? Very well. Fighting fit. How are you? Busy? Very, very busy, yeah. Um, obviously, Manchester Animation Festival's around the corner, literally. Um, the clock that ticks on the wall is getting louder and louder with every tick, <laughs> and the ticks are getting closer together. Um, yeah, so... Full speed ahead with uh, with MAF, which uh, which obviously around the corner in November, and uh, yeah, really excited and really really busy at the same time. So yeah, uh, the closest thing to explain busyness and excitedness at the same time is probably terror. That's that's yeah. <laughs> that's what it feels like. Terror sounds about right. Yeah. Anything you're looking forward to in particular? I think since the last podcast, the uh, full lineup had yet to be unveiled. Yes, well, it has been unveiled. Um, we did a <laughs> we did a um, uh, a launch video, and I I went and, and read out some of the events that we've got at the festival this year, and it was about twenty minutes long because we've got something like one hundred and seven events at the festival this year. We've got a few bits and pieces we've we've uh, yet to announce, which we're we're excited about as well. But yeah, loads loads going on. Uh, the festival's kind of split up into chunks. We've got our family day, which has got some good stuff, including like a, a, a gala uh, preview screening of the amazing Maurice. So if you're a big Terry Pratchett fan, um, head, yourself, head yourself down for that. Uh, we've got the Young Animator of the Year Awards going on there. Uh, a couple of brilliant Hey Dougie workshops, which are supposed to be for the kids, but I've sat in on them and they're absolutely brilliant. Um, that's, uh, you know, proper talent involved there you know ross phillips one of the designers from the show his name's in the credits and everything uh yeah exactly uh we've got the <laughs> academic conference uh and then we've got uh our, we've announced our short film competition our feature film competition our uh immersive film competition's been announced soon absolutely heaps of stuff uh, animated answers is back we're talking about platforms 3d printing ai art which um is uh, is absolutely both captivating, terrifying, and uh, head scratching at the same time. Uh, we've got preview screenings. We've got Dennis Doe, uh, the director of Funan. He's coming along to share not one but two working progresses. He's on his way to math as well. Uh, we've got the fellowship award with Lupus Films. We're going to go into the archives with Cosgrove Hall Films. We've got heaps and heaps of stuff uh, out of the multiplane. Uh, with uh, with Caroline Leaf, who's coming along to that one as well, uh, Amy McNamara as well. Making of My Father's Dragon. We've got a, a, a gala preview screening of Pinocchio. We've got My Father's Dragon as well. Uh, I, I'm not going to read it all out, Ben. People can go to the website ManchesterAnimationFestival.co.uk. Uh, tickets are selling like uh, hot cakes. So uh, if you want a hot cake, go along to the website and uh, buy them soon because they're all selling out. Uh, yeah, and I'll see those in November. But most importantly, Ben, I'll see them there for the squiggly quiz. That's the main thing. Yes, save the best for last. <laughs> and the, the, the true program highlights are inevitably, in any edition of any festival, going to be the ones that have got my stank on them. <laughs> and uh, the squiggly quiz certainly has that. We're going to make it very stanky. Come and sit 
in the stank. Uh, it'd be nice to do that again in person. You know, watch the, the, the bloodlust of people, you know, pushing <laughs> each other out of the way as they run to the prize table. And I think we're going to get some pretty nice prizes for you. It's always, a, it's always a good haul. Yeah. It's a, it's a groaning table and a groaning audience when they hear the questions. But uh, yeah, really excited for this one. It's going to be a good one. Well, Squiggly are also going to be doing a screening like in the old days. We hadn't done that since uh, before COVID. So that'll be nice to uh, get that going again. And uh, a special live edition of Intimate Animation. That's uh, going to be a first. We did a live Squiggly podcast, I remember. That was quite fun. Yeah. So I guess it'll be sort of in that kind of vein, but not entirely sure what a live intimate animation, what form that will take just yet. We have some ideas brewing. What else? Oh, there's also um, the Squiggly slash Linoleum program. Sensitive content, I believe, is getting uh, a showing there, which would be good. Certainly is. That's been going really well in the uh, predecessor. I'm fine, I believe, is online now until the end of October. We could find out information about that over on Squiggly or on the Linoleum Festival website, but that was a really, um, really interesting assortment of films that our pal Aaron put together with Anastasia from Linoleum. And, uh, yeah, a lot of really thoughtful stuff. Going back a ways, it was nice to kind of see how much stuff had been made over kind of, you know, a decade plus. I think something like 15 years, some of them go back by. But yeah, it's, it's a good use of animation as a medium, communicating these sort of concepts about mental health and uh, emotional distress and burnout and working through all of that. So sh- sharing what makes us human. Uh, Laura Beth is also going to be on one of the panels. That's part of animated answers, isn't it? Yeah, 3D printing. Yeah, worth a look because... Um, well, I've, uh, I've, I've been able to see some of the projects that she was working on and Ainsley as well, and uh, they're quite something. She's literally the expert. She's just finished a PhD in it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Successfully defended. What else is going on in the world of animation, Ben? What's uh, what, what's what, what's what's coming up? Something I guess is a kind of recommendation. Uh, if people missed this, perhaps Don Hertzfeld I saw released the first chapter of World of Tomorrow on uh, on YouTube. It's been available for a while, but it was on uh, Vimeo on demand. But uh, now it's free. So if you kind of slept on that and didn't want to pay the very small amount of money that it costs to rent it uh, or buy it, you can watch it for free on YouTube. Maybe you'll like it enough that you'll want to uh, check out parts two and I believe he's still at three at this point. Mm-hmm. I think he's making more. But yeah, that's a really, really, um, it's a really great film. We've talked a lot about his work, of course, and we talked quite extensively about It's Such a Beautiful Day. A couple of years ago, we did, we did the... Um, the film club podcast and this i think was sort of the the sort of main successor to that project and moving into more of a kind of digital sphere for don hertzfeld world of tomorrow but put together in a kind of similar way because it's such a beautiful day was also three short films initially and this is yeah three and, and counting short films as a kind of like series and the first couple um are about uh, this little girl who's visited by a clone of herself in the future, and the clone is played by Julia Pot, juxtaposed against the little girl who I think was Don Hertzfeld's niece. Yeah. As like a sort of toddler. Really, really funny, non-sequitur response. It's kind of like Ike in South Park. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sort of sort of interacting with what's going on, but basically just being a toddler. Uh, she's shown all these amazing sights and sounds and stories of the world of, uh, of well, tomorrow. So... Definitely a film to watch if you um, didn't catch it uh, around the time it came out. There's a feature on it on um, Squiggly from around then where Don talks a little bit about making the film. 
yeah, hopefully there'll be more of that. I think that kind of came on the heels of or around the same time of when he did a bit for The Simpsons, like a couch gag. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, very much the kind of the sort of comedy end of the of the the wedge of what World of Tomorrow was. You know, World of Tomorrow was that kind mm. of, you know, he, he did explore in uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day, he explored that kind of, you know, the... It's it's an odd way to be creative, thinking about what happens when the mind collapses and what what you'd be and what humanity is and everything else that goes around that. But he did a similar thing with technology in the future and and kind of a, a grotesque view of of where technology might lead us and and how we can kind of maintain our ego within a machine or within a within a kind of uh, something. And it and it, it it's. It's hilarious and it's gruesome and it's, uh, you know, not in a, not in a gruesome, you know, horror movie gruesome sense, but it's gruesome in a kind of, (laughs) (laughs) I don't like it, (laughs) but it's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's an absolutely, you know, a modern, if you have to pick a modern classic in terms of like animated films, you've, you've got to look at a Don Hertzfeld one. And yeah, uh, it's a shame that you didn't put your money hand in your pocket and, uh, uh, but there you go. It's it's eventually free on YouTube. <laughs> you win, tight asses. <laughs> well, I I know the pain of trying to get a very very thrifty world to pay what is essentially the price of a cup of coffee on something that you poured your heart and soul into creatively. You know. Yeah. And I don't have a Don Hertzfeld audience. It's sort of doubly uh, something I appreciate. But it's funny how like yeah, just like that little bit of a paywall, just a tiny little thing like that can create this disproportionate resistance to checking something out. You know? And they, they don't, they don't make the money as well. They don't make the money that you might think, you know, we've known people who, who have had that kind of, as, as Don Hertzfeld had that kind of, uh, and I'm not speaking on behalf of Don Hertzfeld. I don't know how much money he made from it, but we know people who in a similar experience have experienced that um, award season kind of, uh, excitement and gone on and won something like a BAFTA or something like that and then put the film online behind the tiniest you know fractional you know cash down the side of the sofa kind yeah. of um, uh, money you might a fraction of what you might spend on data every month you know yeah. um, for, for, for such a wonderful piece of art and they've made next to nothing on it yeah. you know it, it, and it's it's a real shame so just because you see something up on a site that's that's got a paywall behind it don't necessarily assume that people are absolutely firing money at it and that the creator's doing okay you know um it's it's always worth supporting art it's always worth supporting the artists that you want to see more of their work because um uh, you know if you don't support them in the here and now there might not be a future for them really and yeah so um check it out and then uh, spend a bit of money, maybe. Yeah, we're not being asked to to say that. I just, I just like recommending things I like because I so rarely do. Yeah. <laughs> um. What else? Uh, you mentioned my father's dragon at math. Yeah. And that I believe uh, its trailer is out. It came out a couple of weeks ago, I guess. At this point, it looks quite splendid, as I'm sure we predicted it would. It, it's, it's cartoon saloon. 
they almost make me mad, Ben. <laughs> They're just so perfect. <laughs> like, they wouldn't know how to make a shit film if they tried. <laughs> try. Just try and make something shit. Oh, no, I've made it. It's a, it's a masterpiece again. Oh. <laughs> it just looks absolutely exquisite, doesn't it? It looks... Yeah. It just... The, the, the marriage of movement and design and, and just the... The heart that comes from this, this work, it's, it's exquisite. It really is. It just looks absolutely gorgeous. And I've seen Nora talk about uh, the making of the film uh, earlier on in the year, and we're going to be doing the same at Math this year. But it, it, it really is just, it's just heart and soul. You're, you're watching heart and soul up on the, on the screen. And there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing quite like it. It's authentic. It's beautiful. Um, and it just looks damn good. Well, it's something that you could quite happily watch, like with the sound off. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that because the sound of the music, the music in cartoon saloon films are, is always incredible. But it just like on the strength of what it is as a kind of visual showcase, like it's just something, yeah, you can be enchanted by without really even knowing what's going on. And also just kind of like, you know, there's there's humor in it as well. It's not just sort of steeped in fantasy. It's It's got like a real sense of humor to the character design and the physicality of them and stuff like that. It's um, pretty tremendous. So uh, again, something else uh, you might want to take a peek at if you haven't yet. Um, um, I am actually watching it with the sound off, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it in front of me. Uh, it, it It's a... An adaptation, isn't it? So this is Nora Toomey's uh, second uh, animated feature film. She did an adaptation of uh, The Breadwinner a few years ago, and now she's kind of delving into the world of, of fantasy uh, to, to tell the story of, uh, of My Father's Dragon, which isn't something that I read as a kid. Is it something that, that kind of... Was it on your bookshelf growing up? Uh, no, I had never heard of it. Yeah. But something new then. That's good. <laughs> um but yeah, apparently a much loved uh, classic of uh, of American uh, kids. So uh, now for worldwide kids, obviously. Uh, now it's now it's animated. So yeah, I'm really really looking forward to seeing this one on the big screen um, and uh, on the smaller screen. I think it's coming to Netflix, isn't it? So um, yeah, loads to look forward to there. And if you didn't see the breadwinner, of course, check that out too. We had Nora Toomey talking about that in episode seventy six according to this archive in front of me of this week's <laughs> podcast. So maybe have a listen back to that and uh, steep yourself in uh, the world of Cartoon Saloon and Nora Toomey. It's a very Netflixy uh, dominated landscape these days, it feels like. Or maybe their press people are just the most on it. Yeah, they're the only ones making anything. <laughs> Netflix, of course, this year, cutting out a big chunk of what had been a promising animation slate. And um, for reasons I can't go into, that was something that kind of stung a bit for me. But, you know, I mean, there's still stuff happening, which is nice. But, yeah, there was, I think maybe it seemed a bit more like sort of promising this time a year ago or a couple mm. of years ago. Um, Were you a big and, fan of Bone, Ben? Were you looking forward to the Bone series? Well, I actually am not, I'm not really familiar with Bone, mm. but I definitely picked up on that a lot of people were. That a yeah. lot of people were really into it. And, um, cause I think that had been through the ringer a few times, maybe, or yeah. maybe I'm getting, yeah. So there was, oh, this is it. Finally, it's coming on Netflix. And, oh, but. 
because Netflix have this, they do have an incredible kind of track record when it comes to adaptations. And so obviously, um, uh, the Sandman, for example, you know, uh, comic art, comic fans are, are absolutely, uh, Neil Gaiman fans are absolutely, um, delighted with the, the, the way that, um, the Sandman's been adapted by Netflix. Uh, and they want more and more of it, you know. And so hearing that they're going to adapt something like Bone was really exciting. Um, I mean, in the same in, in the same breath, um, in the same breath with with uh, with them not doing that, they have they have of course taken on projects that people were looking forward to. You know, you've got um, and and D Stevenson's comic um, begins with N. Was it Nimona? Because I remember Nimona, that was another yeah. one that people, yeah. So let me pretend, Ben. Through fiendish trickery and duplicity. <laughs> so, no, so Ben, I've, I've, everybody was looking forward to Nimona, Ben. <laughs> they, were, they were all <laughs> smooth as silk. <laughs> They'll never know. Um, so yeah, um, <laughs> uh, everyone, uh, everyone was looking forward to Nimona, which was made by obviously by by Blue Sky. Disney bought Blue Sky and then decided to just basically steal the characters from Ice Age. Um, and uh, Nimona was left um, you know uh, with an uncertain future and Netflix took it on you know and they they continue to to make it and it will come out it's tricky really isn't it I I think um, Netflix imagine them as a a broadcaster you know there are broadcasters that pick things up and drop things all the time it's just that we didn't traditionally hear uh, these things did we we didn't traditionally Mm. hear that Certain series have been picked up or put down, but with the advent of of uh, Twitter, creators are allowed to go online and to 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 decry this the the, the fact that they've been um, that the work is is no longer going to be made, um, and and you see a lot more of it. Hmm. Uh, and I think part of the the kind of the Netflix model, if I'm right, is that they don't pour as much money into promotion as the traditional broadcasters and film distributors do so it's up to the creator to ensure that they're for a part of it that their social media profile is rock solid and that they are promoting their work as as much as possible and generating a fan base which is why some of the names that they signed up have a pre-existing fan base or or really good at social media um so yeah we we hear a lot more about it that people are uh, uh, things are being cancelled simply because we live in more of a readily available information age. Maybe um, mm. Netflix are not cancelling any more than anyone else. It's just when they do, it hurts because we were looking forward to the series that hadn't been announced yet. It, when you know when something comes out on the BBC, we only know about it when the money's gone into it. Yeah, you know, rather than when the ink's on the contract, drying on the contract. I think that sort of notoriously the film industry is is very much built on hypotheticals mm-hmm. and generating buzz before they can actually get going on something and these strange limbos that um you know films can exist in for um for like decades. It's funny how people like really can latch onto them. And again I, I remember that was like one of my favorite books as a kid. That's been being made into an animated film since I was 11 years old. Yeah. <laughs> There's still no closer to it. And, uh, well, I'm old as shit now, <laughs> so it, I, it might not happen. I'm going to go ahead and say that. It might not be. It might, if it was going to happen, it might have happened already when <laughs> um, the guy who wrote the book stock was a little higher. 
I think also you mentioned about like living in a different sort of age in terms of digital information. We also live in a different age in terms of emotional response mm. to media. Like this is an age where if you voice a character in a video game that kills the protagonist, you'll get death threats. <laughs> <laughs> Like that's that's what the present day is, and I think that that's you know it's it's, it's something also to kind of bear in mind in terms of yes maybe the disappointment is amplified a little bit more. There's a lot more currency in in being vocal about being let down, and I kind of remember that initially. Actually, there was a sudden turning point, sort of in the like around 2012, 2013, of like you know as someone famous I I really liked died and it wasn't enough to be sad about it. There was this like impulse to kind of publicly get it out of my system. How sad I was through the incredibly respectful medium of Facebook, you know, whether it's celebrity deaths or a a political situation or a, a, you know, a climate situation or a pandemic situation or a film came out (laughs) that they didn't like, or a film isn't coming out that they wanted to come out. And then it becomes so kind of like overblown in terms of that immediate response. Mm. So I think that maybe that's a part of it too, is perhaps I'm, I'm, you hear it louder, but uh, I understand completely the idea of being really let down. If you were really hoping something, you know, you'd banked on being made, Absolutely. then doesn't get made. But for everything, like all the time, and there are some things where, you know, it gets made and you're like, eh, yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't really make you know, it didn't really improve my life. I didn't need to see Egon as a ghost. Like it, <laughs> it was fine. It was all right. Actually, the only one I actually quite like that, but the only one that really was a letdown was they because I, I actually don't like a lot of popular stuff because I'm sort of awkward and weird. So the stuff I like doesn't tend to get rebooted as much as like say if you're a fan of Batman. <laughs> but they did a Sopranos movie last year, mm. and that sucked. Like they, as, as, as good as the Soprano show was, the movie was antithetically bad. Like it was, it was the inverse. And I was surprised actually at how it didn't upset me. Like I just kind of walked out of it like, all right, well, yeah. they didn't need to, they didn't need to do that. But you know, I'm just not, I'm not going to include it in the next Sopranos rewatch. Definitely. But, um, the reason this is also kind of on my mind a bit is, uh, another animation trailer that's come out to, not a huge amount of fanfare in the kind of general animation community, but perhaps more in the gaming community is the Illumination take on Super Mario Brothers, the the classic video game franchise that was uh, was long overdue a film adaptation. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's a go, Ben. Now, Mario's an interesting one as well because I actually remember watching the cartoon before playing the game. Ah. I, I didn't have an NES, but um, our neighbor did. And so um, there was a show that was based on one specific game in particular, uh, and she had the game. So I kind of would sort of idly play it um, as a sort of fan of the show, I guess. I I don't know. I became a fan of the games, and then I became more of a fan of the show. The show's an odd one to revisit. I actually wrote about it on uh, Squiggly years and years ago, like actually trying to sort of watch some of them now. <laughs> And uh, it's pretty baffling. Like it's it's it, you know it's mostly animation, and it's it's kind of like it's mostly film parodies, but like with characters from the Mario games, and then bookended by these weird live action 
skit things where the guy's doing the voices of the Mario Brothers, who I think were wrestlers. Yes. But they're like these these old dudes. Like, they're not really the age of Mario and Luigi. They're like, it's like Mario and Luigi, the retirement years. <laughs> so you these really old, kind of like sort of Chuckle Brothers, but like Americanized and like they could beat you up energy. <laughs> they're, they're like the, the Bob Clamp close-up of Mario. <laughs> yeah. So they are- just kind of like frantically running around this set in these nonsensical skits with celebrity guest stars who have no idea what they're doing there. They're just shoved <laughs> into the spotlight. You're like, uh, what? what do I do the Mario? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I remember like when I, I went off the show was they, they changed it a bit to base it more on one of the other games and they changed the voices. And then it was weird because Mario was suddenly from the Valley. Like, he didn't have an Italian accent anymore. This is the other thing that also the video games later ruined for me. A lot of people, they think of Mario, and he has, of course, Mario the Mario voice. It's a me, Mario, right? But that, I, I was a more old-school Mario gamer, so when I played Mario games, he shut the fuck up. <laughs> he, he didn't make any noise whatsoever, unless it was a cartoon he, he made He made one noise. He's- as he jumps <laughs> basically in all the documentation is like it's mario he's an italian plumber so all of the media interpreted it as he's from brooklyn <laughs> yeah. so he had this kind of like or new jersey he had this kind of brooklyn slash new jersey vibe to him and then they did the the as far as i'm concerned the um the only mario movie worth watching <laughs> with uh, bob hoskins basically playing eddie valiant <laughs> And he was very good at that. I thought he really sort of fell into that really well. The movie is insane. <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's a live-action movie. And I'll, I'll just describe one scene, and then everyone else can fill in the rest of, the, of, of <laughs> the, the image for themselves. There's a scene in the old Super Mario Brothers movie where the posh woman off Killing Eve stabs Yoshi in the neck. So now you've got that in your mind. You could build a movie around that. And Yoshi is like a like a Jurassic Park reject yeah. animatronic. It's not Yoshi. It's just miscellaneous dinosaur that's attacking this woman. And Sid the Sloth is Luigi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think it was um, a high point of anyone's careers who worked on it. But I thought it was great because it was sort of it was sort of like so batshit it was kind of like you just kind of had to like let it wash over you the new one from the trailer is like okay well this is obviously this this is almost interchangeable with the kind of elaborate you know produced cutscene you would get in the modern mario game where they actually have cinematography and and you know there's an orchestral score and a sense of peril but with that magical decision that every uh, movie studio or distributor or whoever makes of like, and it needs to have an all-star cast. Yeah. Like, is that going to remotely factor into their their decision to buy that ticket? Perhaps it will. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a weird one, isn't it? Because Illumination's biggest uh, biggest franchise is the Minions, and who voices the Minions? Uh, it's the director, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's not Tom Hanks or, you know, Chris Pratt or anyone who, uh, whose, whose, whose name goes on the billboard, but they're the, the, the most cherished characters. The, the reaction to Chris Pratt voicing Mario online on Twitter has been quite entertaining. There's been lots of memes and lots of things going on, but also there's been lots of people kind of sharing the, the kind of international uh, voice cast. So like, here's what he sounds like in France. 
and they've added the kind of it's a me's, you know, and all that kind of like, you yeah. know, the, 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 the kind of, uh, the Mario, um, <laughs> sort of faux Italian, but only a French person doing a faux Italian accent. That's really weird, <laughs> but it sounds a bit, it sounds instantly, it sounds more like Mario. It doesn't yeah. sound like Chris Pratt going, Mushroom Kingdom, here we come. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. It just, like, yeah, you can you can tell why people are, are disappointed. But how does it look? It looks great. It looks it looks like a cutscene from a Mario film uh, from a from a Mario game. It looks it looks like it's going to be good fun. You know, we'll we'll see how it how it works out. You know, one thing I, I will say as a sort of positive on the voice front is I watched the trailer before I kind of like read through the cast list and i did not pick up that it was jack black yeah and that i think is kind of like well at least he's playing a character you know in, in the sense that he's not just doing him <laughs> um there was at least something he was adding to it and those are the i think the and they they are the sort of good signs like i saw that charlie day was in it as luigi i'm like okay i can actually see that yeah again i'm not sure if if he's going to go with like the italian accent i don't think he'd probably need to but i could see why that that energy would work yeah. Yeah, he's just someone who is very good at sort of of he's very good at imbuing that certain sort of comedic energy into things. He was great in the Lego movie. It's the Mario movie. It's gonna appeal for all ages, so the humor's yeah. gonna be broad. But there was there was something quite quite fun about it. Um I and I did get a lot of entertainment from Twitter because before it was released, somebody leaked an image from the Mario uh, from from like I think from like a McDonald's lunchbox or something like that from a Happy Meal box, um, and you could tell that the people who had the most most potent venom for <laughs> Ugly Sonic were ready. They were ready. They were like, "We're ready. We're back, boys. We're back. We're back in business," uh, because this kind of hastily shot phone image of Mario which was filmed at an angle they were like oh oh his face is all out of proportion oh what do you think to it oh should they have to redo it <laughs> wow you could tell they were like rubbing the legs and going oh it's back ugly Sonic's back you know, like, and then the trailer came out and everyone was like oh it's, it's Mario but he's wearing a shirt instead of a jumper fine you know it's, it's, don't worry about it sounds weird let's let's wait for the next trailer disappointed <laughs> like, that there was nothing to be disappointed by exactly exactly <laughs> I think I caught the tail end of that where people were complaining that you couldn't see his ass. <laughs> yes. Like there's no defi- there's no buttock definition in his coveralls. There's nothing there. <laughs> and this is when I, I realized I'm just not the Mario fan I thought I was. <laughs> that my eye wasn't immediately drawn to that. But there you go. Maybe that's part of his story arc in the film. Maybe he gets, you know, some glutes. Get some glutes so I can do those power jumps. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Time will tell on that one. Uh, I guess uh, in terms of uh, other upcoming films, we talked a little bit about Pinocchio uh, in the last episode, which um, we will talk about hopefully quite a lot more in the next one. But something worth flagging, if uh, you haven't been to the site recently, is we just popped up an interview with some of the crew who worked on that film, and yeah, some really nice insights into how they kind of developed it visually. Uh, it's an interview Laura Beth did with Georgina Haynes, who was the head of puppets, and Guy Davis, who was the uh, production designer. 
and uh, Guy had worked with Guillermo del Toro on a bunch of other things. Has, I think, more of a live-action background, but uh, Georgina Haynes, uh, she worked on a bunch of Leica films. She was on series. She did Bob the Builder, I think, and um, worked on some Barry Purvis stuff as well. Old Cosgrove Hall. And she's the person who, who knitted the jumpers in, in Paranorman. She came ah. up with the, uh, the technique to use um, uh, sewing needles to, to, to knit the fabric for, for, for Paranorman, which everyone got really excited about at the time, if you remember. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of good vibes that come through uh, in the interview. It's a really sort of nice quite uplifting read i found I, I know a few people who worked on it and there's just a lot of positive energy around this film it's another one of those things where again it, it went through a bit of a ringer it, you know there was a point where i, was like, I, I think this has been shelved hmm. and you know the version that's coming out i'm sure is is probably different than the version that would have come out nine years ago hmm. potentially but maybe that time that extra time marinating Maybe that helped it out, but certainly it's just nice to to hear about these things finally crossing a finish line. It has, it is it's weird, like literally shelved as well. Because every time I went yeah. into McKinnon and Saunders to pick up the awards from Mass <laughs> every year, I could see it on the shelf, and I was like, "Any cl- like, any closer? <laughs> all sad. <laughs> <laughs> any closer? I want to be a real boy." <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, really, really salivating over this one. Really looking forward to seeing Pinocchio. And it's yeah. a great interview up on the site, so if people want to go and see that, um, it's it's on the features, so it's on the scrolly, the big scrolly box. So, uh, yeah, give it a click and give it a read. Something else that will probably be up by the time this podcast goes up, or shortly afterward, um, our pals at Tonko House, who uh, we have, we've definitely had on the podcast before, and we've done like videos with them, and they, you know, really made waves when they made the Dam Keeper, I think in 2014, 2013, something like that. Yeah. Pixar alum, Daisusumi and Robert Kondo, and Tonka House have, you know, they've, they've been a bit of a chamber of talent uh, since they started. Uh, they have a new series. Uh, it's called Oni, and it's like a four-part series, but like four long parts. Like, they're very chunky. Yeah, I think that if you're a fan of Tonko House, I know that there are a lot of you out there. Like, they come up a lot. Like, the Dam Keeper really has, has a sort of lasting effect on a lot of people. There's a lot you're going to like about this. Uh, I've seen a little bit of it. I haven't seen all four parts, but I've seen you know, the first episode. And it's interesting. It's quite thoughtful. It's sort of a little bit about being kind of culturally alienated. But that's not the the main through line for the whole show. It's kind of like the foundation. But it's told in a kind of like, you know, a series of stories involving like a cast of kind of fantasy creatures uh, that live in this sort of... Um, I guess fairy tale world, but sort of sounds like a bit of a diminishing well, term. Well, I, I think they're based on gods, aren't they? This is the thing. They're, they're based yeah. on kind of Japanese folklore and Japanese gods. So they live in, the, they inhabit this world. It's more folklore than fairy tale. Yeah. So they say they kind of inhabit this world. And, and when you see them all together, it almost looks like the amazing world of Gumball. Yeah. <laughs> where you have all these different kind of characters of different, you know, these all look like they should be from a separate world or a separate kind of a separate place which has its own kind of rules but here they are together and they're all they're all they're all part of the same ensemble um and it's it's really it's it makes for you know real entertaining viewing and 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 exciting kind of uh, possibilities with the the storytelling but yeah it's um it pays a huge homage to um that that uh you know uh japanese kind of uh, folklore and, and and things like that it in and obviously, it's through and through. It's absolutely gorgeous. I saw a making of at Annecy this year, um, and 
I was absolutely delighted because I, I have always felt that anything that Tonko House have done with the Dam Keeper or anything that Tonko House do always gets related back to their work at Pixar. They're always, oh, you remember these guys? They, they used to work at Pixar uh, and now they've got a studio. This, for me, this is the show. This is the thing that's going to shake that Pixar thing from them for good. You know, they are the guys who did Oni. They are the guys that, you know, obviously they did the Dam Keeper. And, but, you know, that was their step out of Pixar. This is them showing the world what they're capable of uh, at their kind of, you know, their full uh, full power, you know. Um, and it's it's really exciting stuff. It's absolutely gorgeous. I'm really looking forward to seeing Oni uh, when, it, when it comes out. Uh, and that will definitely be out by the time this episode goes up. It's out on the 21st, so uh, give it a look-see on, uh, on Netflix. I think that leads us to our guest for this episode, feature film, another Netflix project, uh, although this one is actually out in cinemas uh, until the 27th, and then it comes out on Netflix on the 28th, so you know, quite quick turnaround. It's called Wendell and Wild. Uh, we talked about it a bit last episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. It's a film that uh, we've all been looking forward to for a while now. Uh, it's directed by Henry Selick, who is indeed this episode's guest. Uh, I think it's fair to say a bit of a ledge in the stop-motion sphere. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. One of those directors that uh, you, you kind of coming to know in as you become more and more of an animation, I suppose, animation fan. As a child, when you watch the work, you're not really, you don't really care who the director is. You don't really uh, understand that the work you're seeing really has the fingerprints of that particular director all over it, but you know you love it. You know you really like it. Uh, and then when you grow older, you get to realize, ah, this was made by somebody and this is the person it was made by. And you get excited by that. Um, and this is, you know, definitely the case with uh, with Henry Selick. You know, everything he's kind of, stop motion wise he's, he's put together has those kind of fingerprints through it the nightmare before christmas uh, uh coraline monkey bone it's all it's all it's all it's in there, it's all there. but wendell wendell and wild uh looks looks absolutely uh exquisite and it looks like it it pushes boundaries uh, it, it visually as well which is something i i dare say that the the nightmare before christmas did um something that coraline did it, it's it's something of his trademark, isn't it? It's an interesting one. Like I, I think I may have like alluded to this in the last episode. It pushes boundaries with one hand, and then it kind of pulls back with the other. And that's not a great way to explain how it looks or how it feels. So he stood still. He's doing <laughs> it's completely nothing. immobile. He's- um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's an interesting thing where it really kind of restricts itself in terms of, I think, say, uh, the scale and the spectacle uh, that, of production design that a lot of recent stop motion features feel kind of compelled to include. And so by kind of pulling back on that element of it, it really relies on a lot of visual ingenuity within the characters and within the production design to really sell the story and really sell the action and, and the story beats and all of that. And you just get stuff that you haven't seen in a stop motion film before. And that's a, it's a, a very lofty claim to make in 2022. <laughs> like it's kind of like all been done and then some, you would think. 
And I think we really have gotten to a point where you do need to, to put some restrictions in place to, you know, push yourself in other areas. And it's the, the classic example we brought up a thousand times of, you know, the absence of the kind of budget a later Wallace and Gromit film would have, for example, gave us moments like the train scene and the wrong trousers, you know? Yeah. And that's a really kind of valuable part of this film. No one asked, but I had to, I have a couple of criticisms, mainly regarding like music choices. The the score is good, but the, sometimes there are like songs that show up in places where you're like, oh right, like <laughs> it doesn't kill anything, but it's like some it just seems a bit slapped on in places. And then there are story beats that I don't know they they threw me off a little bit the first time I watched it, and then didn't bother me the second time <laughs> at all but there's it, it, it doesn't have a kind of i guess uh, that sort of strictly conventional approach to really kind of seeding things in a story before it pays it off later you're just kind of presented with scenarios as they happen so you know introducing um the main characters when well not the main characters but wendell and wilde are kind of like a sort of two-man Beetlejuice in this film. Like, they're not the primary mm-hmm. protagonists, but they're, they're pretty essential as far as how this character, Cat, basically moves through the story. And they're great, but they're just kind of there. Like, it's just sort of like, and this is this is the underworld, and this is them, and go. It's like, okay. <laughs> Her situation, uh, you know, this. I don't think you can really classify this as a spoiler because it happens in, like, the first seven seconds of the film. But she's orphaned as a child, and she gets in trouble with the law, and then she's in an orphanage. And we're given that in a big info dump right at the beginning in a way that you, you that perhaps comes at the cost of having any kind of emotional response to her losing her parents. Like, as soon as we see the parents, they're going off a bridge. Right. And again, that's, that's when you watch the movie, you'll appreciate why that isn't a spo- spoiler. Like, it took as much time for me to say that as for it to happen in the film. I think it's in the trailer as well. So, whereas, I, for example, I've seen the first chunk of Pinocchio. I haven't seen it up to the point where Pinocchio shows up. Right. But the first chunk of this film really does seed the relationship between Geppetto and his son and what we know about the story of Pinocchio and pretty much any other adaptation is Geppetto's a lonely old man who builds a, a wooden son to call his own. So a real son is out of the picture. So we know this kid's a fucking goner, but in the, it was a pretty big sequence we saw and the, the kid was alive at the end of it. So there's more of that, like establishing a relationship between father and son to really get, I think, probably an emotional payoff later. So very different approach to these films. You know, I mean, I don't really think they're going to be comparable in any way other than being stop motion. I know they shared a big chunk of crew, but they're each director's vision. Uh, With uh, Wendell and Wilde, it's also draws a lot on Key and Peele. Uh, I think Jordan Peele, perhaps a bit more. They're basically the inspirations for Wendell and Wilde, like visually, the the characters' performances are very clearly modeled on Key and Peele's performances and their dynamic. And, you know, if you uh, haven't seen Key and Peele, I would recommend it. It's a live action sketch show. I think it's on Prime. Very, very funny. They just have an amazing rapport. And you could think, it, you know, hearing that they were going to do something animation, it's like, oh, well, that's perfect. You know, that, that will work very, very well. What's also kind of interesting is that this film, again, you know, took a while to marinate, and it actually, I think, began 
before Jordan Peele started directing films of his own. Mm. So we've had this kind of um, trifecta of films from Jordan Peele that are like comedy horror while this film is being made in the background. So it's kind of interesting how much <laughs> Jordan Peele has kind of reconfigured how he's kind of looked at in the film industry. Like people really kind of hold him aloft a bit as a contemporary horror director now, which is pretty funny considering seven years ago he was basically known for comedy. Yeah. And like I say, they are comedy horror, but also they are pretty horrific. Like they're, they're really, they're just good films. So yeah, this kind of feels a bit like it comes from the earlier days of that. And again, if you watch Key and Peele, like toward the end of Key and Peele, you find that it's almost like every other sketch is like a horror pastiche, or some of them are just really scary. <laughs> like there's some legitimately creepy Key and Peele sketches. So you could tell he wanted to get this out of his system. Like this was something he really wanted to move on to. So yeah, you definitely get that as a kind of vein throughout Wendell and Wilde as well. But yeah, again, like we're, like what I was saying with um, My Father's Dragon, I could enjoy watching this without the sound even. It's just so nicely animated. The character design is so joyful to watch. It's a bit like retro, I would say. It feels a bit 90s to me. I don't know if the people who worked on the film would agree with that or if that was their intention. How, how so? How so? Is that in the motion? Is that in the kind of... Is it a bit... Um the design sensibilities, I would say... Um, they look like art toys. Yeah, like the kind of... Um, the nun character. There's a certain like quality and scale to her. There's a finish to the characters. They feel a bit like... Like, say, those sort of vinyl toys. Mm. But there's something a little bit about... like There's a, a, there's a trio of schoolgirls in it who are like the kind of popular kids and you would think that they would be set up as like the antagonists, but actually they're not. They're just this trio of schoolgirls who were just kind of there. Th- that, to me, has a very kind of, like, sort of puts me in mind of stuff like the PJs. Yeah, yeah. Kind of late 90s, sort of, like, those sort of last days of, like, stop motion on television. Ever so slight whiff of celebrity deathmatch. Oh, but okay. I don't know. These are these are actually pretty, like, far apart, like, jumping off points, but... Just looking at them, they look, they look stills. They look like it could be something from Strange Hill High. Do you remember that puppet show? from uh, a few years back. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's just the vinyl uh, way, way of them, you know, some of the some of the characters, at least. But there's definitely, I think, a quite specific jumping-off point from Afropunk art. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's something that he goes into. So there's a certain contemporary sensibility, very much with the colours and with the, the environment design and that sort of thing, but also a kind of, like, mix of styles. So you have the different states in which the demon characters... When they're in the underworld, they look different than when they're above ground. Hmm. And it, it it's not like super subtle, but like it's almost like it takes a minute to be like, oh, they've changed that. And okay, there's a kind of logic to the design in one environment that's now completely been changed for the other environment. And yeah, I just think that kind of stuff is really fun to see in a film. You know, they have a uh, uh, <laughs> trusty steed, which is because uh, they're sort of like, they, they're in service to the grand devil demon character. And so they're kind of like miniature compared to him. Like they sort of live on his scalp and, and give him hair plugs and stuff like that. And they have a trusty steed who is basically a tardigrade. <laughs> That's a wonderful bit of design as well. The tardigrade really has been embraced by the public in a way that other <laughs> organisms of its ilk just weren't. Like people really just fell in love with that when like those, those, um, images sort of first came out. Yeah. 
of like, oh, that's a that's what a, a moss piglet looks like. It's adorable. Don't worry, you're crawling in them. <laughs> you're crawling in adorableness. <laughs> There's just a lot, I guess, to kind of drink in about it, I think would be my, mm. my kind of main takeaway from it. I think there's some good like intersectionality in it too. It's not too try hard. I feel well it's, it wouldn't have been try hard I think because it would have come from a much more authentic place than a lot of the projects that we tend to see where it's intersectionality by committee ah. and you know representation in a kind of tick box exercise. This is just a cast of characters where it just feels very kind of authentic and organic and you know, thrown in amongst the the demons and the supernatural elements without much of a spotlight, I guess, being drawn to it. So, with The Nightmare Before Christmas, he directed it, but the word Tim Burton is written all over it. James and the Giant Peach, uh, he was the director, co-producer. He didn't do any of the writing. It's another adaptation. Monkey Bone, he didn't write it. Uh, He's the director. Coraline, obviously it was based on... Um, Neil Gaiman's original story and he had a hand in the writing but Wendell and Wilde is his original idea right the way through do you get a sense of do you get more of a sense of Henry Selick as a director do you think or do you pick up on what bits of of the other films that you watched you mentioned the uh, the the sort of breakneck pace at which the the, the sort of um the, the, the way her backstory is told is is very James and the Giant Peach. You know, the, just mm. the, right at the very beginning, we just get a little bit of, um, tiny little bit of animation of a of a cloud shaped like a rhinoceros coming towards the camera and a voiceover. Um, and there you go, you know uh, what's happened. Yeah. It, 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 do you get more of a sense of him as a director, do you think? It's interesting. I hadn't actually made that connection, but you're right. It actually is a very similar jumping off point in terms of how it's sort of timed out and how we're just kind of like, and go. Yeah. I think with all of his films, the element of it that can't be sidestepped is how much the design elements play into it. It doesn't overwhelm the story or the direction, but it's, it's, I think, the thing that kind of steals the show in some mm. respects. Uh, I think it's a chap called Pablo Lobato was sort of the main person responsible for the overall kind of look of um, the characters, at least. And so it's sort of, in a sense, there would be definitely a sense of collaboration that remains. And so between Henry Selick's relationship with Pablo and then Henry Selick's relationship with Jordan Peele, and Jordan Peele had a, quite a lot of crucial input into it, I think, especially as far as how the main character was developed. To me, it felt like a collaborative element, but because we've never seen something that was like, you know, 100% Henry Selleck, I don't really know what that would look like. Yeah. I think perhaps there's there's a quality of the film that feels in parts a little bit naive, mm. and that might be a, a sign of stuff that he's doing for the first time, areas of the film that he's kind of taking charge of that he hasn't before that feel a bit kind of yeah unconstrained, and loose. Hmm. It doesn't have a, a, the tightness, I think, of, you know, a lot of major sort of, you know, big Hollywood feature films tend to have this really kind of like punched up to the max. Like everything is like really, really tightly wound. Every moment is completely explosive and, and you know, it's either got like action or a joke or something. And this breathes a bit more 
there are more kind of like pregnant pauses as we kind of like set in an environment and we kind of watch, you know, the various, the world go by in, in a graveyard or on top of a big demon scalp or, you know, yeah, it, it has quite a more of a leisurely pace. Mm. That perhaps might be something that is a result of, of Henry being sort of more at the helm of it mm. and maybe is more indicative of, you know, an absence of, I guess, meddling interference mm. that in some respects could have could have killed it. Yeah. Uh, in other respects might have improved certain elements of it. But I, like I say, there were elements of it that kind of felt a bit like unusual to me when I watched it the first time. And then I watched it again. I was like, yeah, none of that bothers me now. Mm. Like it's, you know, now that I, I, I know the story, I'm just quite happy to just kind of watch it again and enjoy it for what it is. And um, yeah, there's a lot to like in it. Fantastic. Well, it's certainly exciting to have Henry Selick on the podcast. Mm. He's one of the names that's that we've, you know, if we if we were to have drawn up that kind of long list of, of kind of heroes at the beginning of our kind of podcast journey, Ben, I'm sure he would have been on uh, either one of our lists. So great to have him on and great to see him uh, making another feature film. It's been a fair few years. In fact, uh, I don't think he's made a feature film while we've been podcasting. No. That's how long. <laughs> 2009, we started in 2012. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's um, it's exciting to see him back with a uh, with a budget and with a brand new um, uh, uh, feature film. So um, I'm looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Wonderful. Well, here is Laura Beth Cowley speaking with Henry Selick, the director of Wendell and Wild. To anyone who's a fan of both yourself and uh, Jordan Peele, you seem like an absolute perfect pairing. But could you tell me a little bit about how you first met and how you ended up working together? Yeah, I am. Um, you know, this story actually, it's something I came up with a long, long time ago when my grown sons were little. I did a sketch of them as demons because they could get possessed at times and act insane and scary. Anyway, then, then I wrote a little short story. And um, years later, uh, there was the Key and Peele comedy show with, with Jordan Peele and, and Keegan-Michael Key. And, you know, it took me three years to figure it out, but I realized those two actors would be the, the perfect uh, voice actors for an animated movie of, you know, Wendell Wilde, Key and Peele, Wendell Wilde, Key and Peele. Um, I reached out and, uh, you know, they were both interested in, in the voice work, but Jordan wanted to meet. And, uh, so we did back in 2015 and turned out he's a super fan of stop motion animation. He knew all, all of my stuff. He had studied puppetry. Uh, he, um, even the logo for his company, monkey paw productions is a beautiful stop motion animation, uh, bit. And so I pitched the story and he, he really liked it. And he said, you know, I'd like to do more than a voice. I'd love to be involved creatively. I've got this new company, Monkey Paw, and I'd like to be a producer. And it didn't take me more than a second to realize, oh, that's great. I'd have a, a strong partner um, in this. And, and then from there, we went on to uh, expand it. We got a publishing deal and I was writing a book um, with this guy, Clay uh, Chapman, at the same time we were developing the movie and um, things didn't really fall into place till Jordan went off and directed his first horror film, Get Out. And then suddenly everybody wanted to be in the Jordan Peele business. 
And we we were very careful about where we took our project because we knew it was crazy and um we didn't want to have to like water down and make it you know just stupid so we we found a good home with netflix because they told us right up front if we like a project we like the people we will make it we're not going to just develop it it'll never happen and and it took a long long time but that's that's what happened um jordan really did contribute enormously though to the story in the original sister helly was the protagonist and he convinced me it should be cat and um i said i'm worried well is it too similar to Coraline?" and he said well and she should be uh, a person of color i said i he wanted to make films with this company um that he wished he could have seen when he was a kid he always loved animation but there was never anyone like him on the screen and i thought that was cool and it inspired all the characters and uh, and cast and so forth so it's um it's kind of how it happened you know how we hooked up and he just happened to be a very rare <laughs> individual who loves stop motion animation from a from you know an area you wouldn't expect you just i couldn't have known that from his work as a comedian mm. So as you, you as an individual, your work is very iconic for its uh, storytelling, but also kind of the innovative way you kind of push design and cinematic language within stop motion. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the kind of visual inspiration and where you tapped into that for the film? It started with, with character design. And uh, right from the start, I wanted the demons who are voiced by Key and Peele to resemble them to be caricatures um but not like those awful caricatures you you pay a dollar at the seaside and you get a big head and a little body um uh so i so i i reached out to this this guy pablo lobato who's uh, argentinian and his work is very picasso-esque but i i think it's those beautiful caricatures that have you know he's the best ever no but he's one of the very best ever um and it took a little to convince both key and peel why i felt it was a, a good idea but it was when pablo did the designs they they were they were convinced because it would be very artistic it, it wouldn't um i don't know there's been other caricatures of a famous voice of, of famous actors doing voices that haven't worked out so well I won't name them um so it it sort of started with Pablo and his approach and his it had to character design and, and we expanded I mean his work is super graphic and uh, in the underworld our demons are very much bow relief their faces and so forth um and in the 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 living world they're more dimensional and um so I figured that was we we build a something from there, and then I, I worked with uh, Lou Romano, who's um, a production designer, and uh, Kenny Leoncito, um, an illustrator, to sort of um, you know just to, to to build out from the inspiration, you know, a certain amount of Picasso, but. Um, Lou's very very good he he, he uh, has worked at Disney films and and um 
oh, back um, the first uh, Incredibles, he was the production designer on that. There's a retro feel to the to his work, sort of fifties and sixties illustration, not not from animation, but from illustration styles. Um, always graphic, but with the suggestion of depth. And uh, Kenny's work, um, very brilliant young guy uh, from Canada, um, was a was a good match. Um, you know, it's you 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 put together a team and you have a general idea but you try to give a lot of freedom to these very talented artists and that ultimately um uh led led to the look and there's also someone named robin joseph who came in to uh, be there to design the look of kind of the backgrounds the distant backgrounds which were all added later um and i i thought you know beautifully evocative designed all the sky the skies and the clouds and the weather and it was a very nice compliment uh, to the rest of the look it's a beautiful looking film um as your films always are oh, good uh, i guess another kind of key feature of your work is the kind of use of replacement animation and um as you mentioned your previous film Caroline was a uh, was highly innovative for for many reasons but also for the use of 3d printing to create those facial replacements uh which i understand you used again on this film and i was just wondering is that as these characters have that very graphic almost carved look to them was there any approach to the use of 3d printing in this film that you took and have there been any developments within that technology since Coraline that you found particularly useful yeah that um that idea of using 3d printers uh Martin Meunier and I came up with that many years ago because we happened to be working at a place that had one of the first uh, printers. And um, I just thought, wouldn't it be great instead of having to hand sculpt every single expression, if we could maybe sculpt all the key expressions and then a computer could do in-betweens and, and print them. Um, I always wanted to start, though, with something handmade or hand-drawn and uh so that sort of fed into how how the look of 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 Coraline's uh 3d printed facial animation on this on Wendell Wild two things happened one I want to we had a million million faces for for Coraline there's you know a gigantic range of subtleties I wanted it to work with less I just I felt like we kind of were spoiled with how much we've done there. And I felt, um, especially for some supporting characters, I wanted to see, well, how, what's the least number of face changes um, would work and, and still look good. Like uh, the giant Buffalo Belzer, he has a surprisingly small amount of, of facial expressions and changes. Whereas Cat. Um, she does she she doesn't get the full Coraline treatment but she does have a lot more subtlety and range and so first off it was like how much can we do with less and then also I wanted to show the seam because back on Coraline we realized if we if we create a seam between upper and lower face then we can have many many more expressions by combining different eyebrows eyebrow um positions with different 
mouths. And even on Coraline, I wanted to show that scene that people freaked out. No, 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 no. People, you know, you'll give it away. People will hate that. I always felt like, well, no, in five minutes, people don't even see it. They're not thinking about it. So those are the two ways. Less, using a lot less faces and show the actual means that we, we animate. Did you print in color or did you paint them after printing? Uh, we painted after. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, there's always further developments in the 3D printing. But from what I saw, the, the, the way the color looked there was just something I didn't, I didn't like. And I, I still like combining, you know, handmade stuff. And so painting them by hand, uh, you know, done beautifully and perfectly, I just like the look of it better than the uh, color, color printing. It gives it another texture as well, doesn't it? Yeah. So your films often have a kind of pointedly dark edge to them, and obviously Jordan Peele is a, a phenomenal horror director as well. But um, I was just wondering what draws you to these kind of subjects and visuals, and why do you think animation and stop motion work so well with this kind of genre, this kind of storytelling? Personally, I've always been drawn to it. My mother was too, and she would, she, um, but never, never extreme horror. I mean, I, I like classic horror films, but I, I never won for slasher films. You know, there was a certain point, I think the film was called Reanimator, where suddenly the effects were so realistic. I couldn't, I couldn't take it, but I, I like, I like it. Um, you know, my, my motto is um, my movies are for brave children of all ages. I kind of like this stuff that scared me when I was little. So, you know, Night on Bald Mountain from the original uh, Fantasia, but even um, The Sorcerer's Apprentice from that. With Mickey Mouse, it's dark and scary and wonderful. Uh, the Headless Horseman um you know from the 1940s a disney thing and then all of the ray harryhausen animations um you know he mainly did monsters and effects there'd be another director but really they were his movies but uh the seventh voyage of sinbad uh, jason and the argonauts um and so on those those were um kind of creepy and fun and, you know, if you're really young, could give you nightmares, which, which I had after seeing the seventh voyage of Sinbad when I was about five. I had dreams of that cyclops growing in our family's fish tank every day, getting, getting bigger, starting out small and getting larger and larger. Uh, but I think, I think, um, and so to answer the other part of your question, I think that the stop motion in particular, it, it's, it's quirky. It's um, I call it kind of old magic. It's like, you know, pre CG, it's not slick and perfect. It's a little crude. It can be bumpy, but there's uh, this, um, this life to it. Even the flaws kind of show that it's been touched and it's been brought to life. And it's both charming and, uh, and also a little scary. I mean, uh, 
with the exception of everything that Ardman's ever ever done, they're so good at you know at their style of characters and animation. Um, I'd say in their in their case, uh, it doesn't hold true. But in everything that I do, the stop motion serves to enhance sort of a slightly scary, creepy factor. Uh, so the film was also made in a kind of particularly difficult time historically. How did you and your team adapt to the kind of rapidly changing environment? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the noise I was expecting. <laughs> I don't think I don't think I've got anything you you can't imagine or haven't already heard. So I'll do it quickly, but then I'll tell you about the other things we faced. Um, you know, it's brand new. No one knows exactly how you get it. Um, I think common sense should have told us to wear the masks from the day one, but we had to shut down the studio. You know, we had, we had done uh, most of our pre-production. We were ready to start animating and we had started, but we had to shut down. And then the people that could work from home continued to work from home. I had to learn to work remotely with um, storyboard artists, which turned out to be okay. It wasn't a problem. But then there was other times, you know, I'm working with with people in the art department. If I'd just been there, I could have said that one, not that one. <laughs> but but to do it, looking at pictures and having a big group, it um, some areas were, were more challenging than others. Recording the voices was that became crazy. Um, the studio Netflix was very helpful. I mean, they would uh, like our 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 protagonist cat uh, um they put together like a kit uh a recording kit uh so that lyric ross who lived with her mom could set up a recording kit in her closet at home <laughs> to to record voices and, and it's in the movie so we we found ways to keep going and then eventually, when we were able to come back to the studio, it really slowed things down because we had to keep social distance, you know, filters on the air and tests every every few weeks and so forth. Uh, but, you know, I feel uh, that we, you know, we having faced that, plus we faced, um, there were fires. This was, This film was made near Portland, Oregon. And traditionally, they don't get that many forest fires there, but with with climate change, they do. And there are forest fires getting closer and closer to Portland to the point where um, the air was so so bad you could barely see. The fires were getting so close to the studios we had to evacuate all the puppets. We we felt like if if the puppets survived, we could still make the movie. But if the we could rebuild the sets, but if the puppets were lost, it'd be over. So we had to rescue all the puppets and get them to safety. And then the, the, they were able to stop the fires. And then we, we, we brought the puppets back uh, to the studio. We had, um, we had something called a heat dome. I mean, you know about it, how these, the world's heating up. But we, uh, for about a week, we were the hottest place on earth. Portland up into Vancouver, Canada, we were like 115, 16 uh, Fahrenheit. I, I don't know the equivalent in the Celsius. Uh, we had ice storms, power outages. 
Um, so he was like, God does not want us to finish this movie, but we're going to do it. <laughs> you had all the plagues. Yeah. Any locusts? Uh, no locusts. A few snakes got in the building. That's about it. <laughs> so you mentioned it a little bit earlier, but what was your experience with working with Netflix and building into the kind of production and the kind of end game, the fact that it's going to be on like streamed rather than going into cinemas in the kind of traditional yeah. way? Well, the fact is, I, I love the idea that it would stream because, um, you know, when you go out, when it was only cinemas um, and then maybe DVDs and uh, screens on television later, it's sort of, you know, it's like a sporting event where it's a heavy competition. Who's going to win the weekend? Are you going to get in the top 10? And then how do you do the next weekend? And so it's, it's, um, it's just the stakes are much higher. And it's harder for a more independent type of animated film to to do especially well there. Um, you know, we you know, with Coraline, I think we we came in at like number three. I remember Nightmare came in at number one, which was a fluke, uh, just a slow weekend. But I love the idea that we didn't live or die based on that opening weekend. That there'd be a chance for people to find the film. That there could be word of mouth. So I love the idea of streaming. I also know that everybody's got a pretty big TV. I mean, they, you know, they're because the prices came down. Of course, a lot of people watch shows on their phones, and I hate that. But, you know, for some comedies, uh, it's okay. But so I, I was attracted to the idea of the streaming. Um, we'll come out and like, four theaters, one in New York, one in LA, one in San Francisco, um, one in Portland, Oregon. Uh, but um, I have no issue with that. And as far as how, do, how we worked with Netflix, um, you know, they were learning a lot too. They were like hiring new people every single week because they're growing, 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 growing. So um, like, it's like our animation executives weren't hired till long after we'd already set up the project and started. So they came in and they had to get tuned into um, what we were doing. It's a rated PG-13, which is a little higher than normal for um, animated films here. And I had to get in tune with them, but we, we managed to do it. And they also, I mean, they were very, very helpful during COVID. They did everything they could to keep us going. Um, they paid people who couldn't work. You know, there was a time when everyone who could work from home worked from home and did whatever they could. But there's a lot of people who there was nothing they could do. And they paid them anyway. Of course, later <laughs> they said, your film went over budget. Well, yeah. And <laughs> you helped. <laughs> but by being so kind. <laughs> so this is, of course, another fantastic uh, addition to your roster of films and I was just wondering what your hopes are for the film and yourself moving forward. And do you think you might work with Jordan again? Uh, my hopes for the film are simply that people find it and like it and that it grows an audience of, of fans. I believe strongly it will. I hope it comes a little sooner than, say, five years from now. I hope it immediately gets a certain number of people watching and then and then grows from there. Uh, I, 
after everything that myself and the crew, all the animators and artists and lighting people went through to make the film, we do have a an amazing bond. I, I'd say most people say it was the best work experience of their lives, I guess because it was so hard, but we managed to get through it. So for their sake, I hope I hope people love the work that we all did. Uh, working with Jordan again, yeah, I'd do it in a heartbeat. You know, I think we 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 all have to kind of just wait and see what the response is, uh, because it's always it's always hard to get funding for stop motion films. There'll be a few of them, and then none for years, and and then a few. Uh, and as far as myself, it's it's going to be let's wait and see if there's a a really good reaction. Uh, I've got a couple of projects I might want to do. Um, I had a project called The Shadow King, which was actually starting production, and it was shut down. It was at Disney. It was it was mainly shut down because it, it was going to be done for a certain budget, and it was a good, fair budget, but John Lasseter was still at Pixar, and he couldn't help himself. He just kept changing it again and again and again and again and again so that the budget did start to creep up, and they just felt at a certain point, no, this – this isn't right. So I've, I have the rights back to that. So that might be something. It's still got a good story. Mm. And and then there's another Neil Gaiman book, which um, I, you know, he sort of, sometimes he says he wants me to do it, other times he's not sure, but it's his best book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. I think that would be um, a great final movie for me. Uh, it's really powerful, beautiful, dark and magical, very personal for Neil. Um, and I've done a fair amount of work for that. I've written up, um, you know, like a 30 page outline. I've got all this art. So that's, that's another one. If, if things work out well for Wendell Wilde, those are a couple of projects. Fantastic. I'd like to work on. Well, on that, I kind of wanted to ask sort of a quite expansive question as well and I realised it might be a bit tricky but you're probably the the person I think could have the best scope of how stop motion has sort of had that rise and fall and just how you feel about where it is currently in terms of like the amount of work that's coming out in it obviously there's quite a few stop motion films that are like due to come out in the next year or so and, you know, like you say, you do have those patterns of like every five years or now more likely every three years and whether just basically how you feel about that and what you if you have any kind of predictions for the future. That's a very tough question. Um, I, I mean, <laughs> I can give you my personally for me, going back to Nightmare Before Christmas, when I directed that for Tim Burton and for, for Disney, even they they weren't sure about it. It was a gift to get Tim Burton back to Disney because they thought he'd make films like Batman for them. And he never made a giant film for them until Alice in Wonderland many, many years later. But it was a surprise hit, um, a modest hit initially, and then it grew into this, this thing. But CG animation by Pixar was just happening. We, we were like using the oldest type of animation and we made a quirky, charming, very unique and beautiful film but that became the juggernaut so that by the time i finished um james and the giant peach they just they just told me said well we don't see stop motion as a viable way to make movies anymore 
And even they even came back to me and, and, and Tim's in subsequent years said, we'd love to do a sequel to Nightmare. But of course, it would have to be computer graphics. And it's like, well, what's the point? Why would you change this element that's so much a, a part of what it is? Um, and so, you know, now Ar Ardman Animation, you know, they had a huge hit with their first feature chicken run and now all these years later they're they're doing a sequel to it um that was a, a a good boost for a while uh the curse of the were rabbit was a masterpiece film you know years later but none of these films <clears throat> hit the numbers of the the biggest of the cg films they just they just don't and um in the end it's about not losing money, but making huge profits. I've always said, well, what's wrong with spending this much to make that much versus spending this much to make that much? No, they, they like this model better. Um, and maybe it is, maybe um, it's not for everyone. I don't know. I can't really explain scientifically. Maybe some people just it, don't love stop motion like I do. Computer animation is very slick. It's easy on the eyes. It's like you're being spoon fed the images. It's sort of like pre-lubricated. And yes, there's great stories that have been told with it, but the look of it, it's um, you know, it's just it's just it can be perfect. So so it is. And uh I don't know. Maybe here's here's the good idea. Maybe after decades of high-end uh, computer animation, not just animated features, but in all the special effects of every film, um, people wouldn't mind a little bit more rough and raw and handmade, and, and the old will become new again. That's my happy prediction for the future. <laughs> I'd agree. I think it's like anything doesn't suit everyone but not it doesn't have to in the same yes, way that the story the don't doesn't suit everyone always so i'm not quite sure yeah. why technique has to also as well so that's i also i just feel like i need to state that i i obviously grew up on nightmare for christmas it's one of my favorite films but james the giant peach is also one of my favorite films and i've never understood why it uh well i i know from a historic point why it doesn't necessarily get the fanfare it deserves but it's always one that I'm keen to rewatch and revisit and bring <laughs> out for everyone. Um, it oh, has some of the best puppets ever made, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I know. I, lo I love the film too, but it was also Disney didn't really support it when it came out because they just they'd already given up on on stop motion. But yeah, it's it's it's, it's um, I love your quote though. It's. Uh, it's not for everyone and it doesn't need to be. I think that's maybe why it, it thrives over in uh, over here in grey England. We like we like the quirk. <laughs> yeah, I think you're you guys you're more connected to the past. I mean there's a much bigger past than Hollywood. And so you're not quick to throw out old techniques and here's the newest and here's the latest. I've always liked sort of seeing a mix of um, I mean, some of the best, by far, stop motion people in the world are from 
England, I, I always end up working with many people, you know, animators in particular from, from England, because it's just a craft and art form that's well-respected. It's, it's taught in schools and goes on and on. That was Laura Beth Cowley talking to Henry Selleck, the director of Wendell and Wild, which is out on Netflix on October 28th, uh, following a short theatrical run here in the UK. Check it out, you know. Can't speak highly enough of the man. We're all very excited to see how this goes down. Be nice to see him again, you know, in less than 12 years from now. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe narrow that gap between films, hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. And yeah, uh, if you're not even that familiar with him, maybe you like Jordan Peele. It's a great Jordan Peele film. Everyone involved does a smashing job. It's a great Maxine Peake film. You might be a Maxine <laughs> Peake fan. Who knows? Maxine Peake's in it. She plays this kind of like archetypical um, British posh lady villain, Cruella de Vil kind of character, I guess. Brilliant. Ooh, here's something we haven't done in a while. We have a, a fact sheet about the film. Ooh. Would you like some chillingly fun facts about Wendell and Wilde? So long as they're both chillingly and funningly as well, yes, please. Well, if there's a dearth of chillingness or funness, uh, let me know and I will uh, rescind said <laughs> facts. I'll just pick a few at random. Cat, uh, the main character, has roughly 160 individually hand-curled strands of hair on her head, each made of dyed wool. Ooh. There you go. I wouldn't have thought they'd have counted them out. But there you go. <laughs> I wonder if that's better or worse than all of the freckles on the character in Isle of Dogs. Yeah. Gee, yeah. Jesus Christ, what a thing to put your puppet team through. Yeah. Do you think, most of this fact sheet, looking at it, is is just people from the puppet team complaining about the fact that all the details <laughs> that they've had to do. Ooh, uh, Miss Hunter had a Link Ray shirt. Neat. Mm. The souls condemned to Bells's Scream Fair are what Selick calls danged souls. Many of them are based on people from Selick's own life, including a bar owner who fired him when he was a piano player, an ex-lawyer who cheated him, the high school wrestling team coach who made him lose weight, and his wife's old boyfriend. So he's got some demons. That's, that's a specific list. That is a very kind of nightmare before Christmassy sequence. And that's yeah. another thing I really kind of, of appreciated about this film. There's lots of little moments here and there that really call back to like, oh, that's very James and the Giant Peach. Oh, that's very Nightmare Before Christmas. Mm. And if you kind of picture the way Nightmare Before Christmas opens and you have the um uh the kind of tracking shot through the graveyard and you get the 2D animation of the ghosts sort of overlaid. Mm. On it, you know, come well, there's a kind of stop motion y version of that kind of thing as we're going down into the underworld, oh, into nice. this kind of like demonic fairground. You get the way the spirits are kind of depicted and floating through. Yeah, that felt very this is Halloween. So there's lots of little kind of, um, I don't know if you'd call them Easter eggs, callbacks, maybe little nods to, to previous work. Good stuff. Well, I think we did three facts. That's enough. Good <laughs> Watch the film. Maybe we'll do some more next episode if there's a demand for them. I'm, I'm, I'm gawping at these facts. There's, there's 34 of them, Ben. Let's, let's do one more and then we'll have done more than a tenth. You can spot two surprise Jack Skellington appearances in the film during the opening credits, first leading us down to the screen fair and on the antenna of the juvenile detention centre van. There you go. I was uh, dipping into a couple of the old... Um Film club podcasts. Yeah. Because we, we did James and the Giant Peach and Nightmare Before Christmas. 
Yes. Yeah, it was a bit where we were talking about like Jack Skellington cameos in uh, in his films because yeah. he shows up in uh, James and the Giant Peach. And uh, I'd forgotten this one, but we were watching Beetlejuice the other day, and uh, and Laura did mention this in the podcast. But there's that scene near the end where he's got a little Jack Skellington on his hat. And that predates Nightmare Before Christmas by like three or four years. Yeah. So I I do wonder, like, was that on the cards for him? Like, was he thinking like, because I think that it existed like as a sketch at that Mm. point, probably it's like 1988, 89, something like that. So yeah, to actually kind of like have a cameo before he's even like a popular character. That was a, a weirdly sort of prophetic moment in Beetlejuice. Yeah. Interesting. Or maybe it's just the only way that Tim Burton knows how to draw skeletons that's that's actually more likely <laughs> <laughs> still a good film beetlejuice still holds up yeah doesn't make any sense whatsoever but it's still good <laughs> right uh do we have anything else to talk about um uh, i've run out of stuff yeah i've i'm i'm equally spent uh just to tell people to get themselves down to manchester animation festival in november We've got all that amazing squiggly stuff coming up and loads, loads more. So you can go on manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. Get yourself some tickets to some good stuff uh, and uh, fill your face with a feast of animation. And we'll see you there in November. Wunderbar. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for another episode of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Uh, I'm sure we'll be back with one more before the year is through, all being well. Uh, Yeah, but maybe catch you at math uh, in the interim. Thanks also to Henry Selleck for talking to us about Wendell and Wilde. You can catch that on Netflix again on October 28th. Good fun all around. Well, I've been Ben Mitchell. You can catch me on Instagram at Ben L. Mitchell. And you've been Steve Henderson. I certainly have. I'm on Twitter. I, I, I'm uh, I'm not as trendy as you. I, I like to be where the aggression is. Will you catch up to the year 2014, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> With me and my influences? Eventually. Eventually, yes. I'm Mr. Underscore S. Underscore Henderson. And uh, you can follow Squiggly on Twitter at Squiggly. Uh, it's on Instagram as well at Squiggly Animation and Facebook.com slash Squiggly Magazine. We're also got a website at Squiggly.com. It's the place to be for all the animation apps, yo. So I'm trying to be down with the kids. Get that subscriber base up. Yeah. I got, I got it. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah. Righty ho. Until next time. Happy animating. Go away. I'm off. See you later.